and welcome to the uh, bi-monthly Industry 4.0 Community Podcast. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds. This show today is put on by 4.0 Solutions and FullStrength.ai. Um, this is a pre-recorded podcast because I am on sabbatical. Today, our guest is Tom Norbert. Um, Tom and I met at the uh, at P at the LiveWorks PTC LiveWorks in Boston uh, a few weeks ago, and we had a conversation and said, "Man, you'd be a perfect candidate to come on the podcast. Would you mind coming on?" We have not prepped for this in any way, shape, or form. We have a couple of topics that we might we're going to discuss, but it's going to be a fully organic discussion. But before we get started, I want to introduce Tom. So Tom uh, Tom Norbert has extensive experience in IT and manufacturing, uh, currently serving as the manager of IoT infrastructure and production intelligence solutions at the Trelleborg Group. I know Trelleborg through like polymers. Um, so we work with a lot of polymer companies here in DFW, and that's how I know Trelleborg, but they're a very large uh, Swedish company, I think it is, and I think they do 30, 30 billion or something annual. They're a big company. Uh, Tom holds uh, an MS in management information systems and a bachelor's in business administration. He's got a minor in economics. Uh, he holds a certification in Lean Six Sigma as a yellow belt, professional scrum master, and he is a PMP project management professional. With over 12 years at Trello Borg, Tom has played an integral role in the company's industry 4.0 and IoT initiatives, overseeing the interconnection of machines on a manufacturing network with the corporate network. His position involves ensuring secure and efficient data collection systems and setting standards around IoT devices and infrastructure. In addition to his current role, Tom has experience as an IT manager, IT operations specialist, and a group IT project manager at Trelleborg. He has also served as a director of IT at the American Institute of Steel Construction and the Little City Foundation. And one of the things we talk about all the time is there's four questions you should ask yourself before you ever, you know, go out in public and, and speak from a position of authority. Mm -hmm. Question number one is why should anyone listen to you? Well, that's why we should listen to Tom today. So, all right, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm glad we actually were able to put this together. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, outline about yourself before we get, we get into the conversation? No, I'm just intimidated by my job description that you just read though. Man, yeah. I'm scared that to death was, of myself. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> So what, what, uh, when we, when we just, when we talked at LiveWorks, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, a number one, why were you at LiveWorks? So, you know, you're in digital transformation. What was the reason, what brought you to PTC's LiveWorks? Was that your first show? Number one, had you gone to LiveWorks before it was your first one mm -hmm. and what were you yep. doing? I, so that was my first LiveWorks event. Um, we have been partnered with PTC though, for the past four and a half, five years, because uh, I, early on, as I was starting to take on the topic of Industry 4.0, discovered the wonderful Swiss Army knife that is Kept Server, uh, and figured out that we can do a lot of lift and shift of data with Kept Server. So we right. kind of figured that one out really early on, and we ended up being one of the first kind of corporate licenses that they have. Uh, we mm -hmm. were advising them on on the structures that we saw that were necessary to kind of put that together. So we've been partnered with them for quite a while now, and uh, it's really helped us. It's really shot our Industry 4.0 transformation ahead. Um, and as a result, you know, we've got some stories to tell. So that's why they invited me there. Uh, and it was great to, to be there and hear all the other experiences that everybody else has with it as well. So, so one, of, one of the things that I had said after, so Tom sat on a panel <laughs> about, um, about Kep Server. So um, 
And so it was Tom and two other gentlemen on that panel. And and Adam Kennedy, who is the vice president, I think he's the vice president of product development or uh, business development for Kepware. He, he was moderating and Adam had asked me to sit in on that session. So I sat in most of the time when I'm sitting on a plat watching a platform or watching um, a panel like that. Um, I'm oftentimes I'm thinking, I'm asking the question, well, I wonder what their digital strategy is, or, you know, I wonder what their architecture is, or I'm, or, you know, do, do they think in terms of minimum technical requirements? Right. So one of the questions I asked was, Hey, can you guys tell me your digital strategy, MTR and, and you, Tom, and the other guy from, um, Kinston, North Carolina, he, you, you both answered the question, which never happens, by the way. So I, I go up, I mean, we went up and we shot the shit for 40 minutes, 45 minutes or whatever it was. And we're like, man, you should, you know, you absolutely should come on the podcast. So the, let me ask you this question. So what, what is the digital strategy? What was it? What, was the what, answer? Is, what is the digital strategy? Yes. So our, our digital strategy is to focus on driving our manufacturing operations through deeper digital understanding of the data that we've never been able to see. Um, so we're, we're definitely have a strategy around pulling all that data up, getting it visible, and then moving forward into kind of the fun stuff, machine learning, AI, et cetera. Um, we have a very clear stair-step strategy around that that we call production intelligence. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I, I think I shared it with you guys. I hope you guys had a chance to check it out. But it's, yep. it's a very clearly defined procedure and path that we have that we want to make sure that we're raising all the sites uh, at the same level at the same time to achieve things in a kind of a universal fashion. So our strategy is focused right at where each of the sites is. So one of the things that you had talked about, so we call it minimum technical requirements, right? Where, you know, there, you already know this and, and you actually touched on this in your presentation, which is that um, some of the, the, the actions you take the problems you solve, the your your focus areas are a function of where you are in your maturity. So when you're mm -hmm. first engaging, you're focused in a different area. And as you become more and more digitally mature, your focus areas, your approach, it shifts, right? It, we talk about this in digital transformation, that if somebody comes to me and says, how much is it going to cost me and how long will it take? And, and I say to them, I have no idea. I mean, I can give you in my professional opinion how much I think you're going to spend over 18 months and what that is likely going to be the return based on if we do it correctly, there's transformative leadership, you have a strategy, you have a sound architecture, you're focused on minimum technical requirements, right? Well, minimum technical requirements are the piece that's the future state. As you're more and more mature, you are using your minimum technical requirements to give that to your vendors to say, if you want to be part of our digital ecosystem, you have to meet these minimum technical requirements. So when you land your equipment, we're going to be able to integrate into our infrastructure. And you you didn't call it MTR. You called it something else. You um, you, you have a, I, I can't remember what you said, but you said you had a, a kit. Oh, it was called a kit. Yep. You have yep. a kit that you give to your machine builders that contains the minimum technical requirements. Go ahead and talk a little bit yep. about what that is. And then let's talk about how you arrive to that point. So, so that's, yeah, it's very important. So it's not specifically a kit. It is a list. It's the minimal, minimal technical requirements is, is really okay. what it was. And you're right. I didn't call it that. I can't remember what I called it. Um, you know, I was speaking off the top of my head, so who knows what I said. Okay. Um, but uh, the, the minimal technical requirements are what we provide to each of the vendors as they're coming in the door. They say they have their own IoT gateway or IoT solution that they want to land, and it can give us X, Y, and Z. 
right? Well, we have to make sure that it's secure. It can connect to our, our network. We can patch it and support it, or they can patch it and support it. So that way it is a kind of evergreen technology that we're putting in rather than a fixed device that'll have to be replaced in five, 10, 15 years, or whatever it is. Uh, so our focus is, is making sure that it's a sustainable solution for us going forward uh, with anything we put in. So what we work with with the vendors is, you know, we evaluate the security of their devices before we ever allow it to come on the network. And so we say, here's, you must be this tall to, to join Trelleborg. Okay. If you're not this tall, I don't care. Um, right. What I was, and I think now that I'm talking about it again, what I was saying is that we're running into vendors who can't provide that. You know, we're running into vendors who are still stuck building machines from 10 years ago uh, and they just don't realize that the game has changed tremendously and they just can't do it that way anymore so we're having to develop our own kit internally so that way at some point you know if a vendor can't supply us with a kit for connectivity we can provide our own kit and, and again it's driving towards zero trust networking which is where we were we were going uh with part of the conversation we had there because with zero trust networking i have to know what that device is when it's connected to my network i need to know the status of it I need to know that it is protected to the maximum so that way I've got a universal protection across all layers of my network in order to do data collection safely. Can you can you quickly explain, uh, I mean, obviously without breaking any rules, but can you explain Trelleborg's architecture? So sure. what, it, what is your architectural approach to acquiring digital data, aggregating it, putting it in one place and converting it into information. What is that yep. architectural approach? So, so the physical architecture still very much follows the Purdue model. Yep. And again, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel yet. I'm trying to meet everybody where they are. And I understand there probably are better ways to do things. However, the technology status that I have, the, the tools that I have is all built around kind of that Purdue model approach. So I just run with what I got. Right. You know, why try to redo things at that state? So Single we very much DMZ. So just one DMZ or do you yeah. have. OK, yeah. so you well, don't have. One, yeah, no, no, we've, we've got one. Well, we call it a we, we call it a production control zone, because every time I say DMZ, my CISO thinks I've got an Internet connection. That I need to disconnect. So we call it production control zone, uh, but it's at every site. So every site has a delineation. We run firewall separately at each location that has this. And then we drop everything that's a machine into a certain VLAN structure that's behind the firewall. And we have our kept server landed in that production control zone. That's our intermediate layer in between. And that's yeah. where we focus our, our security around as well, is that, you know, each one of those layers is a different security requirement that you have to reach in order to be able to move up to the next layer. Um, you know, I, I have no way of patching a PLC easily. So everything that's in my production network is as isolated as I can make it. As, and, you know, I don't let it communicate with anything other than my kept server or other than my IoT gateway uh, that potentially could be there. So those are the things that, that I have. Uh, on that point, part of the reason Purdue exists, if Purdue exists for really two reasons. Number one, it was designed, the Purdue security model was designed at a time when master-slave poll response server client was the standard architecture, right? It's what was serial communications is what was available, right? Yep. Um, so that's where Purdue Purdue came from, right? Number one, number two, and and this is in and while while technology has changed to the point where we can uh, we could we can engineer out the need for Purdue, the one of the limitations is still there, and that is patching hardware. There's a there's a company here in, here in Dallas. It's actually a startup here in Dallas, and they're called Bytrail, 
and Bite Trail, when, when they re originally reached out to me, they were like, hey, we're thinking about doing hardware ops. So, you know, we're, we specialize in security for hardware. This is our experience. And one of the things that we see in manufacturing that's missing is the ability to manage hardware at the board level from a central location. So how do you patch stuff that you never patch, right? And yep. this company, Bite Trail, they hope, their focus is to be able to keep our PLCs, our edge devices, our HMIs, all that stuff on the latest firmware versions in real time without any downtime. Like that's their primary focus and they're developing this technology to do it. Now, where, 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 when will they have MVP? I don't know, but I do know they're going to get there. I've seen the prototypes. I know that the technology definitely works. We're using them with one of our clients right now. But one of the things that I, I, I will be talking more and more about going forward is hardware ops. Like mm -hmm. how does hardware ops is a, a component that we have to be thinking, thinking about. How do we manage, how do we patch hardware that sits on in, in the critical infrastructure? You know, I, I think a lot of people think critical is the carpeted side of the business. Well, no, I mean, that's important, but that's not critical. Critical is the stuff that makes your widgets, right? And yeah, it's like, how do, you, how do you patch critical infrastructure and it's a, and it's a huge gap in our industry no no question which is the reason that architecture has to be the way it is so you you're using kepware to talk to mo is to all the devices that you can i you actually i think you said there's no device that you've found so far that kepware can't talk to right i think you're the one who actually yep. said that yep what are you using yep. what what opc clients so obviously are, are you using ThingWorks? Are you using Ignition? Are you using like what what platform are you using to communicate or to, to the to Kep server and consume from the OPC server? Or well, how are you is, handling it? This, this is where we start merging into the Walker Reynolds landscape where we built our own. Um so we're we're using the the IoT gateway on Kep server and we're just throwing everything out to the cloud. Um Got it. because we're a large enough corporation that we've got negotiated services uh, with the large vendors that for us, consuming cloud resources is not that bad yet, right? Um, we still are very much in the early stages of things. Now, from an architecture standpoint, we're also doing our data ops in the cloud, which I, I can see that coming back down to an edge application at some point, right? We've not reached that kind of that that peak of, of data throughput that we actually would need to bring some of it back yet, but it's there. You know, we know where that wall is. We know we'll eventually hit it. Um, so I know there's other tools that you've talked about. I, I won't mention the names, but I know who they are. I knew them when they were three people uh, as that organization, and I know the one you like. Um, yep. So um, that that is very much on our radar. Uh, we very much have already trialed that stuff out. We just haven't reached kind of that critical mass to need it per se and, and justify those expenditures. But for us, we'll grab the data, we throw it out to the cloud, we do all our data ops transformations, everything out in the cloud in Azure functions um, and, and you know other functions that we have out there. And then we transmit that data into either a data lake or some sort of table storage. And then we consume it into other applications as we need to, you know, other you so, know graphical displays yeah. or other things, power bi um, or our yeah or our own internal software that we've built so we've we've built our own oee software that we're kind of it we're, we're transforming it into a mes light right you know we're never going to be a full mes organization but it's one of the tools in our toolbox that we definitely need to hit um it's oee and, and kind of a few of the the um the ancillary descriptions of things around oee that you need 
um, like quality and scrap and all that fun stuff that you get into. What do you, what do you mean when you say MES, uh, you're talking about MES, what do you mean by MES. you'll never be a full MES organization? We, like what, we, what is that? I'm just curious. Sure. So we are, again, you guys have kind of hit it. We're a global organization. We're also a Scandinavian organization, which means we're very decentralized. Um, I don't have one boss I have to report to. I got 120 that I got to chase when I'm, I need to get a topic off the ground. So there are different aspects and maturity of where they are on their production scales. So we don't necessarily want to go all the way down into the SCADA control layer of, an org of their organization, right? You know, that's not where we are. Um, we will advise on the SCADA software that they probably should use. We will advise on, on some of the things that will work well with the next layer up from a data ops standpoint, but we're never going to sit there and tell them, you guys need to use this PLC and this controller type and this for that machine. That's never going to be where we are. And those are the pieces, you know, when you think of your MES layer stack, that's kind of the piece that we're dropping out. And that's where we're relying on our machine manufacturers and, and, and everybody else who's more of an expert on that than us anyways. You know, I don't, necessarily want to get into control mechanisms i just need to know what the data is i need to be able to get the data and go interestingly okay so, so what you're saying oh sorry so I, let me say this so i, I want because i want to clarify for the audience so the way i'm visualizing this if you guys want to understand how this is architected is there imagine we took layer three which is the manufacturing execution layer and we broke it into two blocks so now mm -hmm. you've got l1 l2 l3 l4 l5 l5 being cloud right Imagine you broke layer three into two blocks. One is the block that OT is responsible for, and that goes down to the plant floor. And then one is a block that Tom's group is responsible for, and that's where Kepware lives. And what he's doing is he's aggregating all the edge data in this other L3 block using Kep server. Then he's using the IoT gateway to stream all that data directly into the crowd, bypassing L4 going directly into L5 for IT functions using Power BI and Power Apps to turn data into information. And then these leaving an open space in the L in the L3 layer that where manufacturing execution would traditionally live for other people to worry about. That's what that's what he's doing here. Yep. To, to agree. There, there are a lot of, there are over, a lot of clients that are like this. Approach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Over time though, we are moving more and more into that other block. Like, you know, there probably will be an eventually in a maintenance module that we'll have, and that'll be part of that block. And we may eventually take on some of the quality module and that'll be part of that block. And then and in that other block, there's also, I mean, it's really kind of this, this soup of other stuff that's been thrown in there over the years, right? You know, we've got some ERP functions that are in there. You got layer four stuff that's in there that people have gotten away with. So for us, we still need to take that back apart and put it into the right layers of things, right? You know, there's there's some things what's, that need to happen. What's funny is I've asked this question a million times. You look at the ERP stuff, right? And by the way, there's a conversation that Tom and I had after his panel that we filmed, and that conversation I I we have not published it yet, but we will. Is I that think it's be only members only. I think it's going to be members only. I think it's only yeah. going to the YouTube members. I can't remember why. There's some members reason why only. we're doing. That. Um, I, I'm yeah, not sure we, why. We, well, we part of the conversation, stuff I don't think we could mention publicly. Yeah, some of the conversation is going to be public, like we'll be in a YouTube video when they do the, that. But there's the whole conversation unedited will go to the members. So it's the same thing when I met with Tom, um, the product owner for, for Kep Server, that we published part of the conversation, I think uh, 30 minutes of it. But the full unedited conversation will be like for the members behind uh, on YouTube. So... Um, 
that, but I, I have no idea. I can't remember why they're doing that. I, Josh uh, will have to. I think it was a time, a, a time thing. I think because, um, especially. Oh, with, right. It doesn't negatively stuff. impact the algorithm. That's what yeah. it is. The stuff that we give to members doesn't negatively impact the YouTube algorithm. Well, so, I like that you're giving a lot of love to the members too. Yeah, that's the other thing. There's people who support the channel, but um, Tom, let me tell you. So one of the things that you talked about that we talked about was the importance of assessment up front, right? Capability assessment, gap analysis up front before you ever break ground, and the importance of having a strategy. Will you talk about that for Trello board? Because this is something I preach Absolutely. over and over. Right? Absolutely. So, so, yep. so when I when I started on this, so as you read in my background, I've worn many different hats over the years. So, you know, I've I've got a different perspective on these types of topics than others. Um, so when I came into the industry 4.0 topic, started looking at the manufacturing side of things to see how we were going to do this. The first thing I noticed right away is that we had a huge discrepancy between what my sites were telling me they were capable of and what I actually knew they were capable of. Right, you know, from a technology standpoint, I'm like, you guys are nowhere near that level. Their processes, yes, absolutely, very much nailed in. They've been doing it that same way for years, but their technology to drive that, absolutely non-existent or very, very low. So the first thing that we did is we actually hired an external company to come in and do an industry 4.0 gap analysis for us, which I, I know there's something that, that you guys are involved with as well. We, we yep. had them come in and we, we evaluated all our, our sites and we wanted to do it that way for two reasons. One is I was coming from IT and that's a very nasty four letter word in a lot of organizations. So <laughs> I, you know, I never wanted to be seen as the guy to telling people what to do. That's not me. That's not what we needed to do because it instantly would have set everybody off. The other thing was that I had partnered up with manufacturing excellence in our organization because I knew they were the partner to kind of help me form and shape and kind of chase people. And they themselves didn't really know the answers to a lot of the questions and they had a lot of curiosity. So we partnered together and said, look, let's just draw a bench line. Let's just see where we are and let's get a good understanding. And of course, the results were exactly what we what I kind of thought based off of the, the quick analysis I had done is we had this huge gap. And, and once we showed that to everybody in an independent way, everybody got it. They're like, okay, yeah, we get it. Our processes are here, but our technology needs to do this to get up to this level where we can do something. Did they and understand? That, did they understand that they didn't know what they didn't know A after yeah. that assessment? They understood. Absolutely. We don't know what we don't know. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. And then, then we also through that we we had a kind of a parallel thing going on as well. Is that you know based off some of the outcomes of the the survey. We went into a few kind of lighthouse sites to do just an analysis of what is going to be the best bang for our buck. Where should we focus our industry 4.0 journey? Like you said, you know, you get somebody asked me, what do I need to do? And you go, mm, I don't know. Um, but the, the big thing is, is for us was that we started focusing right away on OEE based off the outcomes of that. And it, it has been. I mean, it's like an instant bang for your buck opportunity right. for our organization to chase. And that's where we started. And that's where we've kind of progressed to at this point. How did you pick your lighthouse sites? Um, honestly, they were just two sites that were were standing on the shoulders of a few others. So they were they were easy for us to pick because we knew that if they had it here, they were at like several other sites, right? So we, we knew that they were kind of the lead examples of other sites where we'd have a good example of them. Um, and, and I just have to say, just, a, a, just taking a step back, I, everything that I'm talking about, I don't want people to go, oh my God, that guy's just done all that. I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of other people, folks. I, I just happen to be the guy sitting in front of you talking about it. Um, but there's a lot of partnerships and a lot of people in my organization that I work with to make all this happen. So it's not, it's never a one man show and, and that's never should be seen either. 
moreover, it's never just your vendor's show. Like you, no, God, wanna, no. you guys own this, right? <laughs> yeah, Trump, yeah, Trump, yeah. We, we're in full and agree. Just like the other gentlemen on the panel, they, they, they work for the end user. Like this is the thing that we stress over and over and over again. The idea that the, the, the model that the system integrator or the integrator or the consultant is going to own the outcome is that is a dated, that is an old model. Yep. The, the integrator, the consultant is coming in for two reasons. Number one, they're coming in because they have domain expertise that maybe the team doesn't have yet, and you're gonna teach them domain expertise. More, mm -hmm. and, and in the beginning, you may be doing a lot of the actual development work, the conversion of data into information. The integrator, the consultant might be doing that in the first phase while you're onboarding the client. Or we've had many clients where the only thing that we had to do was the assessment. Literally from day one, from breaking ground, the client was doing 100% of the work and we're just advising, okay? There are some clients, depending upon where their digital maturity are and what kind of human resources they have, where we've got to do the bulk of the work. We have to provide engineers to do the bulk of the work in the first couple of phases. But one of the things that stood out to me and the reason I wanted you on here, you said you, there was something you said during the panel that stood out and you said, I'm paraphrasing here, you said, but everyone knows how Tom can be. You talked about yourself in the third person. You said, and it was basically, you know, you, how you hold people accountable. You will challenge the status quo. You will, you know, Tom, Tom is the guy, you're not going to be able to pull the wool over Tom's eyes, however you framed it, but you were yeah. basically, and that, and we, we refer that, we refer to that as transformative and disruptive leadership, which is an important component of a successful digital transformation initiative. Right? Yeah. So let me ask you this, Tom, you're obviously a type A, Right. You're obviously you have strong opinions. You're clear, clearly diplomatic as well, but you're a strong type A in a large organization. Everybody, our, our audience is going to want to know, how do you overcome the friction? So when you run into, say, a political hurdle or how does a person like yourself who's in this role overcome the friction? How do you how do you focus on overcoming that? It's simple. I prove it. I don't okay. just talk about it. I walk the walk as well. So, you know, it's not just enough for us to sit there and say, you need to do this, you need to do this. We need to show them why you need to do this. So, you know, a big part of what always is in the back of my head is I have to tell people what's in it for me. You know, it's, you got to answer that. Otherwise they're never going to be reciprocal about it. And it's really interesting because we've had those sites, you know, we've had a lot of friction with a lot of sites that say, oh yeah, we can do it better. We'll do it our own way. Bah, 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 bah. And, you know, they have come full you know 180 back to us and said you know what you guys are on it you know this is this is the way we want to go because we've been able to demonstrate the value much clearer to the business and it drives the investment so much easier for the businesses once they've got that picture so you know when we first started there was a lot of justifications for capex and investments and things that are necessary to make this stuff go and now the capexes are practically writing themselves because of the cost savings that are coming out of it right you know so there's no question anymore about what do we need it's just more of how quick can we get the the services lined up and which how many more sites can we do based off the number of staff that we have right you know it's not it's not this big big hurdle anymore but it wasn't easy i mean it's it takes a lot of convincing it takes a lot of work there's a lot of just you have to put it into place and show people here's the value of it um and sh and prove it back to them time and again so that's how do you when I, how do you, you talked about the capex piece and i don't i didn't mean to interrupt you but mm -hmm. how do you 
how do you handle the I've seen lots of examples of different distributions of CapEx expenditure, say a third of the CapEx is coming from the business unit, a third is coming from the the parent company and a third is coming from the site. How, what, can you quickly go into how much are the sites since you work for the business, right? Mm -hmm. You work for the business. How at, at, at what what level of commitment, financial commitment is the site having to take on? in order are they taking on the bulk of it and so you're having to sell you're having to sell the full kit and caboodle like they have to be convinced that yep. this is valuable to our okay yep. talk, talk about that since so they're they're picking up the bill the site's picking up the bill they're basically hiring you from the business to do this yep. what are the what are the two or three areas that you're primarily focused on in in, in order in order to sell the value of digital right so to um to them, the, the the things that we're focused on are OEE. I mean, that's that's clear number one. That's the where we start as far as the the end result where they're going to go. We say, look, you know, if you implement this, and we've got a model that we say, you know, if your turnover at your site is X amount, you can save approximately X amount based off of the the outcomes we've seen at other sites. So we've got a ratio, and it's pretty. It holds true. I mean, we've been pretty impressed by that ourselves. Uh, and the other one is energy savings. Now, the thing for that is that I can achieve both outcomes with the same investment for the site, right? You know, so I'm only having to ask for one big lift from an infrastructure side. But I always point out to them, look, I'm putting in plumbing in your facility. This is not sexy. This is not pretty. This is nothing that's going to it's going to get you anything once I do it. Other than once we turn the tools on and turn the lights on then we go, right? But in, in order to do that, we got to do all this other stuff first because you haven't spent anything on network cabling in you know 15 years. Guess what? I can't use it. I got to get something else in there. And it's not pretty, it's not sexy, it's just a sunk cost. But once we get there, it's all paid for once we turn the lights on and go. How many sites do you guys have? Uh, we've got 200 sites globally, 120 of which are manufacturing. So I'm I'm really only focused on the manufacturing sites. The others are are warehouses and sales offices and things of that nature. Of the 120 manufacturing sites, how, so I'm assuming architecturally there is a Kepware instance at each at each site. Yeah, uh, not all of them. Just yet. one I mean, instance still, connecting to all infrastructure. For now. Yes, I'm very okay. much in the, the mode of I need high availability with kept server in some of my locations, right? So I'm playing so around where, with a quite a thing, few things, right? So this is where plus. So this is where plus my kept server plus is going to play I'm, a big. Okay. Absolutely, they are. They are. I mean, I've already, I've been playing around with the underpinnings of kept server, and my team has been playing around with the underpinnings of kept server. We can do high availability on our own. It's not easy. Right. You know, it's there's a lot of scripting involved. There's a lot of, you know, you got to wiggle this over here to make this where we're here work type of thing right now. Right. It's possible. I want to make it smoother. I want I want to get rid of the, the friction of of what it takes to get to that. And I want it to be an integral part of their software because I think it's it's necessary. I won't need that at every site, okay. but I'll need that at majority of my sites. So you've so, got 200 sites what percentage or 120 manufacturing sites? What percentage of them? Are, have been quote unquote onboarded. Is yeah, it half? Are you? Are you? We're we're over half. We're over half, okay. and it's it very various aspects of half, right? You know, we're doing some of the sites are doing just like one cell rollout, and then they they got plans for more cells. Some of them are doing you know more of a full blown rollout. It just depends on you know how you look at it, but it's um it's been probably just in the past six months that we've gone over the halfway mark with our sites. And we've been working on this for five years. So this is, this is 
not doesn't happen overnight at all. Right. Okay, so I've been doing yeah, that's what I was gonna say is if you were gonna, you know, if, if there were two or three, you know, uh if you were gonna pass on knowledge that you've have you been part of the journey the whole five years, right? Yep. Okay. So if there were two or three nuggets that you were gonna pass on to people watch listening to this podcast that hey, if you're gonna embark on this type of journey and that journey is the long goal is we want to be digital. We want to plug into a digital supply chain. So we, and digital means data is our primary commodity in our business. And we learn from our data and manufacturing is really, it ends up becoming really secondary to the value of the data we generate. Right. Yeah. So if, if that ultimately the goal, right. If that's ultimately your long, your 10 year goal, whatever it is, you have intermediate goals along the way, right. You have to provide value iteratively in the short term and then in the midterm and then in the long term. If there were, if there were, uh, you know, two or three pointers or the, the biggest thing that you've learned that you would definitely want to pass on to someone else who is going to embark on this journey, what would they be? What would that be or what would they be? Yeah, well, I think the, the first is benchmark yourself. Know what you have. Know yes. where you are. Uh, you know, you can't start any journey until you know that. Um, be realistic about what's achievable. I mean, that's <laughs> the other thing that I see out there is that people try to take on everything all at once. And it, you just you can't for one. But for two you you don't realize what the value is when you do it that way. You know, you, you almost need to do it in an iterative approach to realize where you're getting value along the steps that you're taking. Um, and the third is, is that, I mean, you're going to find yourself with unusual partners on the way. Uh, you know, you know, when I, when I approach manufacturing excellence when, from an IT standpoint, they were like, who the hell are you and why the hell are you talking to me? Um, okay. But in the end, it was, it was, it was perfect because we needed each other in ways that we didn't realize. Um, you know, I, I can advise on the IT side, they can advise on, you know, manufacturing process side. And we really came to really good understandings of how we needed to shape this for everybody to see what needed to happen. Um, so that's that's really kind of the thing as well, is that it's never one person. It's a group of people and it's it's talents of people that you may not have even thought of yet. Right. You know, I mean, I'm constantly writing job descriptions that have never existed. Uh, for yeah. positions that we're just we're just kind of like yeah okay we need a guy we need a person to do that and this is this and job description that never existed based on aptitude not experience that's the biggest Absolutely. challenge Can not, not even have the aptitude to create to fill out this new role that we've just created that there's no example for right yeah. like there are there aren't when you you look at organizations that they want a director of digital transformation right go out and try to find somebody who's got 10 years of experience or five years of experience as a director of digital transformation. They're not out there. You have to try to find someone with the aptitude that you think can serve in that role, right? I mean, that's the, let me, let me ask you this. So obviously this has been incredibly successful for Trelleborg, right? And, and in our experience, in our experience, as you, you know, we talk about the technology S curve, right? So you, that as, as you start leveraging technology and you're doing it effectively on mm -hmm. a, you know, common strategy, common architecture, common and minimum technical requirements, the return starts to yield exponentially. And, and that value that you're creating for the business make, as it becomes more and more visible, people want you to provide more and more value at yesterday, two weeks ago, you know, they don't, how do you manage you must have a, a a huge influx of requests. How do you manage the influx of the requests as the value becomes more and more apparent to an organization that's getting more and more digitally mature? How? Because that that's a question another people are going to ask. How is it he's managing that at scale? 
because this is a big organization. 120 sites is going to put you in the, you know, the top 10, 10th percentile. You know, you'll be within the, you know, the top 10 percentiles of all manufacturers. How are you managing it at scale? Just, just the, the volume uh, of requests um, that you must be receiving. Prayer and whiskey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we, uh, we, we really, um, I'm actually, that's a really good, it's a really, really good question Approach. because the, we started with a fixed group of team members and we have quickly outpaced our capabilities. And I'm, I'm the first to say, it. you know, we're, we're in way over our heads when it comes to a capability standpoint, which is great. I love it. It means that I got more work to do than I'll ever know what to do with. However, um, the, re the reality is we need to have business value realization. And, and part of the way that we've done it is we're trying to reformat and reformulate the way that we present our services to the business. Right now, they're paying a lump sum for all services within a certain structure. And what we're starting to do is break out this section of things and say, look, you know, we're going to we're going to do an incremental piece here. Like for every site, you're going to pay X amount. You're going to pay so much per connection. So that way it starts scaling with what they want to do. Right. So and then there's a direct correlation effect right. of the cost that it takes to do that with the benefits that they have. Whereas right now it's a little bit, you know, it's fuzzy for us to break it apart. Um, that's just something really recent that we're starting to work out because it, it, it is. I mean, we kind of reached that point of we're successful, we're successful, we're starting to get really good, really good, and then everybody wants to do it at the same time. And that's where we get the challenge. Right. Yeah. Oh, mass, right? You just get, you know, it, it's literally, you see it overnight. It's, it's you know, we're, we're very careful in, in the early phases with our clients you know, we want to yield value in our proof of concept. So after we do benchmarking and assessment and we define a strategy, we define an architecture, minimum technical requirements, and we pick a POC, you call them lighthouse. We pick a POC. We, we want that POC to cost no more than 25 to say $40,000, the absolute most. We want to yield the value in, it in 12 weeks, no longer than 12 weeks. We want there to be tangible value at the end of that 12 weeks. When we get to the say eight to 10 week mark and we know okay, we're going to deliver here and they are going to be incredibly excited. The first thing that we're going to have to do at 12 weeks plus one day is, is tell them to hit the brakes because the first thing they're going to want mm -hmm. is we want it everywhere. Whatever it is, we want it every place this applies, we want it everywhere and we want it. And, and, we're, we're, and we're already formulating the strategy for steering them towards what we believe is the next optimal step before we start to scale. We want to hit to a, we want to get to a point where we know that we're maximizing value across the business as we decide to scale, right? We're hyper, hyper focused on that piece. Um, you know, let me, let me ask you this question here. I want to, we don't generally get technical here, but I am curious. So what you're doing is you're connecting to all your equipment and are you, are you generating tags or are you doing like explicit reads through cap server? Are you building, you're doing a, a combination of both, right? All right. If I've got a, if I've got a Rockwell PLC and they'll okay. give me all the tag structure, beautiful. I'm way ahead of the game at that point. Or I may need to. Perfect. You're just, yeah, exactly. Or I may need boom. to build a data yep. acquisition unit. We use um, a particular brand and we have to generate a Modbus signal. So, I mean, we're, we're literally wired into the, to the uh, panel and we're picking up signal A, signal B, signal C, and we then we create our own Modbus structure off of that. So, I mean, we're all over the board. It just depends on what do I need to get first, right? You know, what is the machine capable of? JSON structure for the IoT gateway. Are, are you using a custom structure that you guys have defined or are you just, 
um, using the predefined structure where I'm I'm saying here are all the tags I want you to package and publish these over the IoT gateway into the cloud? Or do you have a predefined where you're you're doing some data ops? It on initially the edge with that was JSON. everything. You know, we just took everything we could get, send it out, and then sorted it from there. We are more structured now. But it also depends on the types of machines. Got it. So if I have one particular machine manufacturer, I know what I'm supposed to expect off of that. And I know there's a certain tag structure that I'll have off of that particular machine. And that and I'll focus in on that, which makes it go faster the next time I have that standardized approach come in my door. You know, we have with certain machine manufacturers out there in our world, we've already negotiated. You provide the machine, you provide the data gateway that we've already certified, it comes in the door, we put a wire on it and we're off to the races, you know, within a day because we we kind of have it down to that point. Um, for those, that's the easy ones. I'm, you know, getting more and more into the challenge of the machines that have been out there on a floor for 30 years. You know, nobody nobody really remembers what that relay does anymore. So we're, we're trying to figure things out now. And that's actually why I have an automation engineer on my team. I've got an automation engineer in an IT team to focus on that stuff. And that's what we're doing now. I mean, we're actually building some of that stuff. Did you bring that automation engineer? Mm -hmm. So did you hire from within or did you, you, you hired that yeah, automation, but, you brought um, him from ironically, outside? Ironically, he was working as a consultant within our factory before I did, I didn't know it at the time, but I hired, I hired him in. Yeah. So he was already, and, and so is, does he act, he or she act as the liaison to, to the controls groups on the plant floor or the, or the maintenance departments or whoever's managing, yep. you know, controls infrastructure. So they're the liaison, the direct liaison yep. to the plant. OT. Man, that's, no, nope. we don't see that. Yeah. Very and often, and we have, that's, again, that's we have incredible. different maturities at our organization as well. Some of our sites have a full automation team and, and, you know, for them, it is more of a challenge for us to get in and kind of understand what they're trying to do. Others, they just operate the machines, right? They don't even know what the capabilities are. And so this automation engineer, floats in between both levels, right? You know, for those that don't have it, we can go in and help them with it uh, or advise on, you know, maybe we need to go find a guy in the, the area that can come in and wire it up for us. Uh, for those that are the control engineers, it's great. We give them one example of it and then they, you know, they put it everywhere. Uh, and that's that's even better because it's just kind of, it's a multiplier effect at that point. You know, I've got one guy and it just, it goes from there. And then it, uh, we found that the, the word spreads. We didn't know this, but apparently the control engineers guys talk to each other at the different sites. <laughs> Who knew? Um, but <laughs> that word starts spreading and, and then suddenly, right. you know, it's, <laughs> it's we're off to the races with a site we hadn't even had on the list yet. Uh, so it's it's really been interesting to watch. Go ahead, Vaughn. Go ahead, Vaughn. Yeah, so Tom, as a, you know, as a blue collar guy, as a plant floor guy, you know, with experience, you know, as an operator, everything like that. Um, and, you know, there's a trail board facility right here near my my home. So obviously friends of mine work for trail board. Um, so for me, you know, all of the technical mumbo jumbo is just mm -hmm. Greek to me. And it is to most other people that are in my position. So kind of what I want to what I want to know is what have you guys seen from the initiatives that you've taken? What has been the response from like your operators, your plant floor people? How are you empowering them and what has been their response? It's, negative it's or positive? been overwhelmingly positive because what we're doing is we're taking burden off their shoulders. Nobody likes paperwork, right? You know, if I can, if I can give them an iPad and it's a single pane of glass on what's going on in their machine and then they're suddenly just choosing what my downtime codes are, you know, how many hours of their life have I saved? Right. Just they're not chasing around that stupid piece of paper anymore. And that's our focus. Right. I want a single pane of glass for my operators. 
And that's the other thing too, you know, when we talk about your level three, level four, et cetera, going back full circle to something else we we're talking about, I want that to be my operator interface to their ERP as well. I don't want them to have to go into more than one system. I want them just here. You do this. This is all you need. And, and it, it changes the way they see their job. Then it, now it's no longer technical mumbo jumbo. Now it's my friend because I'm able to point to my supervisors. This is right. what happened. This is why it happened. You know, maintenance needs to get over here and fix this. I've been telling you guys this for years. And now, you know, this is all the data about it that you got. It's been really overwhelmingly positive. You know, you know, it's interesting. I, I did a post today on LinkedIn or I did on Twitter and it, it and they put it on LinkedIn as well. And it, it, it was a manifestation of a conversation I had had um, last week. And, and, and in the conversation I had with somebody, you know, I said, building your own intellectual property using open is not the same as building your own intellectual property using someone else's intellectual property. Right. Mm -hmm. So building IP with IP is not the same mm -hmm. as building IP with open. You guys are a perfect example of building IP with open, right? Where the infrastructure mm -hmm. itself is open, right? You're using open technology for the infrastructure, but then you're creating IP that is unique to Trelleborg, right? And so the question I have, and, and by the way, it's it's exactly the, the the approach you're supposed to take. I mean, and the reason why is if what you're trying to do long-term is be a digital company and you want to connect your digital company to other digital companies you want to you want to connect your digital company to digital consumers through a single pane of glass well you need to be digital based on open not digital based on proprietary yep. and intellectual property right because that becomes the barrier between you and that mm -hmm. infrastructure you're trying to get to right and you guys have done this i mean this is you know power apps power bi and power apps is Microsoft intellectual property. However, it's connected to an open infrastructure that you own and you can decouple BI and apps and plug something on top of it and you lose nothing, right? And so the question is here, by the way, I love, I actually love Power Apps. I'm, I'm a big fan of BI. I don't use BI that much. I use other tools, but I actually like Power BI. But I'm a big fan of Power Apps for CICD on the plant floor, right? I'm a big, you know, Power apps, as long as I have my data structures right and my information models right, then I can teach somebody to mm -hmm. create their own application, right? Using Power Apps, right? So are you doing that? Is that a second piece? So in addition to you creating the single pane of glass, are you also unlocking potential on the plant floor through operators, engineers, mechanics, electricians using Not Power Apps or some yet, other tool? But it's on our board. Right. Yeah. I mean, right now we're what we're trying okay, to get our heads around is just how do you govern the the, the power app stuff, right? You know, because I I don't I, I mean we want to enable everybody to do what they want to do, but then we, I don't want to recreate uh, access databases everywhere in my world. Like you know, if you remember, everybody used to do an access database and put their own macros on it and things like that as just you know nightmarish to try to to handle. What we want to make sure is we find a happy in between, and that's where we are right now. I mean, we've got ideas that would use that approach that you just talked about, Walker, but we're still not quite there yet. Um, but I'm a big I'm a big believer in that as well because I'm never going to be able to be as much of an expert as that shop floor operator or maintenance person on what the job actually entails. You know, I can provide them with a package of the basics of you know here's here's what we understand. And then let them modify and change and, and kind of adjust to their local flavor of whatever it is that they need to do. That is where we see kind of that path right now. 
we call it red and blue. So we say, you know, and if you look at a unified namespace, we build the mm -hmm. unified namespace red and blue. So the semantic hierarchy, whatever we pick, we use ISA 95 part two. I think you also said that you guys are ISA 95. We use ISA 95 part two to organize the hierarchy of a unified namespace, enterprise mm -hmm. site area line cell, right? And that's red. So the definition of the semantic hierarchy is red. That means it's it's enforced by the enterprise, it's enforced by the infrastructure. Then you have functions that are red. So like, let's say OEE is a very common one where we're calculating OEE the same way across the organization. So if I have an OEE namespace, that OEE namespace is red. But then we have blue. Blue is the ad hoc stuff. It's the stuff that is unique to one asset. Like I have a function that only applies to one asset in one site you know, it's one, maybe we acquired this business. It, a lot of times it's like offline operations it, that where it's, it's a one-off. We call that blue where it's a, or CICD is blue. So it starts blue and then the enterprise organization, the Tom Norbit and his team are monitoring for all the new function, the new blue functions in the business. And then they're evaluating those blue functions and deciding whether or not they should be converted to red and applied to the whole business. We talked about this, you know, th there has to be a mechanism to, to manage. Otherwise, what you end up with is access databases, Excel spreadsheets, right? When we value, when we do the assessment, we're always asking clients, I, I want you to bring all your Excel spreadsheets, not mm -hmm. the ones that somebody else built. Mm -hmm. I want the ones you built. You know why? Because you built that Excel spreadsheet can be traced. The antecedent of that spreadsheet mm -hmm. is a problem you had. So I want to know what the problem is. The Excel spreadsheet is an is a is a window into what was the problem you were trying to solve. And if if what we're trying to do is create a single pane of glass for solving our problems, I want to get back to that antecedent and solve that problem you solved in an Excel spreadsheet, but using yep. using our new digital infrastructure. Right. I, I want to talk about this. There was point four, which was challenges in mainstream adoption of IIoT and Industry 4.0. So in our in the notes here, where we're looking at um you know what it is we should talk about the, when i saw this piece right here you know the challenges in mainstream adoption which by the way all of our content comes from that it came initially when we started producing youtube videos in 2018 and zach tricked me into going up on the whiteboard right you know the whole i was never supposed to be in front of the camera and he tricks me to do this whiteboard video our whole perspective had been around what is it we have observed that people are like if we wanted to teach people, don't make these mistakes, right? Like everybody's making the same mistake in the first 12 to 18 months. It's literally, it's crazy. The, the number of mistakes that we see over and over and over again. Our whole perspective was what are the challenges to adopt? I mean, right now, if you go over to the EU and you talk to people in the EU, digital, they believe digital transformation in industry four mm -hmm. is a failed initiative. They believe that it has failed, 90% of initiatives have failed, right? But over here in the United States, while there are a lot of failures, there are way more wins in the U.S. than there has been anywhere else in the world. And the question is why, right? So what I want to do is ask you to talk, discuss what, from your perspective, what are the challenges and why has mainstream adoption been so slow um, in your, from your wow, perspective? There's a, that's a, that's going to be a lot to unpack. Um, let's, well, let's start with the difference between the EU and America, that's right? Because I'm, I work both sides of the ocean on, on both sides of the pond right there definitely is there's in the eu there's more of a they have to see the value before they're ready to go with it right they need to, it's kind of like you have a chicken and egg problem you have to show them before they want to do it 
in the US, we're very much open to experimentation, iterations, trying things out, seeing what happens, you know, keeping the cost down on the, on the approach, right? But, you know, it's not a big deal to do an experiment to see. Um, fortunately, uh, we have in our landscape kind of built in a little bit of both, right? You know, so we've got an ability that we play with things and we prove it out and then we see what we can do with it further down the path. So I think that's why in our organization, it's, it's kind of taken hold because we've been able to, for those in the EU, we've been able to show them the value of what they need, but we've been able to do it in some iterative approaches with some, some partners that were very willing to do so. Um, you know, so it's because we're tackling the problems that they've been having forever. Um, you know, if you look at uh, lean manufacturing, mm -hmm. it's hit a brick wall, right? You know, there's only so far you can go with lean manufacturing without getting digital. Uh, and as soon, yeah, exactly. It's a plateau, right? It just stops because all of those questions that they can't answer are because they're not digitized. And as soon as they get the data from the digitization, right. then they start going again, right? Those questions that they've had for 20 years, finally, they can see insight and get answers because they've got the data. Um, so that, those are, that's the other thing that, that we approach with it. Um, I would say that the expectations in the EU were too high, that they thought everything would just be magical and it's, whew, you know, away we go. And that's not the way things happen. I mean, like I, like I said earlier, I mean, we've been doing this for five years and we just now are at the point where we've got enough data to really start doing some interesting machine learning, some interesting AI stuff. We're starting to get some contextualization of data for different right. points. I mean, it takes a long time. If you've not started this or you're not digital in some way, or if you've been traditional IT, everything's on one side of a fence and nobody's touched it never, it's going to take time. It just is. Um, that's another big reason. You, you, you know, I, I say this, becoming digital, digital transformation, net, first yeah. off, it never ends. It's a strategy. Like when, you know, there's a, a a lot of conversations out there about you know the ultimate you know the ultimate guide to digital transformation or this is how it should be done. No, digital transformation is a strategy. Part of the reason you're failing is because you think it's it's a project that ends. It's over and all of a sudden you're digital. No, no, no. digital is the way you operate your business. Like it's a it's a mindset. It's an approach. It's a strategy for the way you operate your business. If you were to go ask Tesla, who has a digital maturity score of 87, that's the highest in the world out of a scale of zero to 100. The next closest is an 82 or an 83. And by the way, at that at that end of the, the distribution, the 82 to 87 is is 100 miles. I mean, it's a huge distance, right? As opposed to on the mean, 50 to 51 really is just one point, right? At 82 to 87, two standard deviations from the mean, that is a, that's 100 miles, right? Even, even the folks at Tesla would argue, we, are, we don't think we're as digitally mature as we can be. Why? because they know that they're still iterating to a path where a lot of business decisions that they currently make manually will, they won't, the, the artificial intelligence will help direct them mm -hmm. to, uh, on that decision. Right. But one of the things that we talk about all the time, and I think this is a, a, a very common misconception in our industry is the importance of understanding that there's only so much you can know, when you have to, when you collect all your data manually on paper, when you are, when you don't have insight into mm -hmm. every single event, rising edge and falling edge in your business. And that's what being digital is. You guys are right on, you know, there's, it happens in two steps. Step number one is becoming smart. Connect, collect, store, analyze, visualize, find patterns, report, solve, yep. right? That's that first step. You guys, mm -hmm. that takes three to five years. And you guys, you guys are literally the, 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 the example, right? three to five years to become smart, then it's plugged into a digital supply chain, 
right? So then it's plugged into a digital supply chain. And now I'm connected to uh, suppliers that I don't currently work with. And I'm connected to all my customers and all the p potential addressable market. Mm -hmm. You guys are right on course. Most people don't know. When I say that first phase takes three to five years, they mm -hmm. most of them are shocked. I'm like, listen, you need to be prepared. This is a journey. Mm -hmm. This is a journey, right? But anyway, I didn't mean, but it, other challenges well, as think, you see I it. I think the, we'll, we'll the take whole topic got lost with a lot of buzzwords and a lot of um, uh, just startups, you know, good people out there. But honestly, it just kind of muddied the market. You know, you got uh, the big guys saying they could do it. You got small guys jumping up saying they can do it. Everybody says, oh, we can do the whole thing for you. Uh, and I think that kind of misled a lot of executive teams that they didn't really understand what it was. Because, you know, from an external perspective, they're going, well, everybody says it's easy. And from an internal perspective, those of us who actually were in the weeds, we're looking at it going, yeah, okay, there's no way in hell. That's just not going to happen. I don't know what they're talking about. Um, and, and I think that right. really kind of, it really damaged the whole, um, the whole path for a lot of people. I, I think, you know, the... I think it's going to revive. I mean, I think that the whole topic's not gone away. Those of us that have been kind of continuing to stump on and do what we needed to to digitize, um, and, I, and I, I listened to your MEP thing the other day, and I very much am in the same boat. You know, I was when I was giving speeches three, four years ago, I was saying, you know, if you haven't started yet, you're not too far behind, but you can start now. But I would never say that again today. I would say, like, if you haven't started yet, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you, you guys are you guys are going to have to spend multi million dollars yeah. to catch up. I mean, it's not going to be easy. Um, what did what did you think I thought of the great. mass I thought MEP it was spot keynote. on? Um, I I, <laughs> I find it shocking to listen to Walker because it sounds like I'm listening to myself sometimes, um, which is really weird. But I you know I mean verbatim he will say things that I've said or things that I've made in presentations. Um, and, and no offense, and I I hope to God you don't think that I'm borrowing from you. I don't. It's just it's the way I think. You know I'm I'm saying the same things you are. Um, I think it was spot on. I hope that you guys had a good response there because it, that was the right market that they need to hear those words. Um, you know, that's a roadshow that probably should be at every single state level uh, manufacturing partnership group that they they all need to hear this right now. I, I think. Well, I think New Hampshire just invited us, right? Is that right, Vaughn? Vaughn? So I'm yeah. going to be I'm going to be speaking in New Hampshire at the New Hampshire MEP. Um, and they mass MEP has connected us with the whole country. There's 50, mm -hmm. there's, there's an MEP yep. in each, in each state and they've connected us with everyone. I will say this, um, the the former Lieutenant governor of Massachusetts was there and he's now the, he's yeah, yeah. the chamber of commerce guy or he, he's the president, he's the yeah. president of the Massachusetts chamber of commerce, but he is the former Lieutenant governor. He spoke right before me. And um, and I referred to him in the speech. We actually tried to cut most of it so that it didn't look yeah. like I was throwing shade at him. But he talked about in Massachusetts how education, like, you know, they have world-class education there, right? World-class academics, world-class intellectuals, all true. But my point was I'm going to demonstrate how poor of a job intellectuals and academics do in conveying ideas to people on the plant floor. And when, and literally when I asked the digital, does anyone have any idea how to do, there was not a single person who raised their hand on any of those three questions, N not a single person. And, and the reality is Tom, to your point, one of the things that blows my mind about executives that executives don't struggle with learning is they, when they hear PLC or they hear machine or they hear, cell or work center, they, they believe, I think in their head, they're all the same, right? 
you, I worked for Newcore Steel. You were yep. in the steel. You were in the yep. steel industry. Right? I worked for Newcore Steel. I was a I was a controls engineer at Newcore Steel. I worked in the rolling mill. We also had a melt shop. The total engineering team was something like ten to twelve people, right? And we all worked under the same leadership. We all, and you could tell. You could literally walk through our process, connect to a PLC, and you know mm -hmm. exactly who wrote that program. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that, I hope he, Ron wrote. I that. hope they had a good day. Oh, Phil, I right. hope it wasn't like a hangover right. Monday or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> everyone yeah. uses their own naming conventions. Everyone, you, and what most people don't understand is that when you want to become a digital company, and you're going to extract that data from this equipment, the the naming convention, the structure, the add-on instructions, the user-defined data types, the, the the function blocks you choose, the parameters you define, mm -hmm. all of those things matter. And you literally, at a very basic level, you have the wild, wild west in the vast majority of manufacturing operations. And if you ask them, hey, now you don't want to be over standardized because then it, it, it stifles innovation, but you have to have some standardization, right? Most, most manufacturers do not understand, most executive leaders of manufacturers do not understand the diversity among the just what we call their data in their business. The vast majority have no idea. They and that's why they think. I think they think this should be yep. easier than it actually is. Right. Um, one other one other thing I wanted to um, to ask you: What does the future look like? So, at mm -hmm. your you guys are more than half, right? You guys are. More, I, I want to make speak to two things. What is the future for Trelleborg <laughs> and your initiative? What do, what are you going to be doing over the next eighteen to twenty four months? And then, where do you see digital transformation as a movement? going over the next so 18 to 24 Trelleborg, months. So uh, over the next 18 to 24 months is, is going to become more integrated with the data collection from the shop floor into the other levels of the organization. So we're already starting to work on that. Like I, yep. I was saying, the single pane of glass for the ERP, that's actually a big initiative of ours within the, the context of like um, ERP rollouts right now. You know, so no longer is it just we're going to do a separate implementation of OEE software. We're doing a full package implementation of OEE, ERP, new scanners, new everything, whole new way of doing your process truck. So for us, right. that's a big one because that's we've got a lot of activity in that area right now to kind of standardize that approach within our sites. Um, so that is going to be a big chunk of things. We're also adding in contextualization of data. Um, right now, energy data is a big one because of the way the energy crisis has hit a lot of communities across the globe, manufacturers especially. Just, I mean, that's a bottom line at savings initiative. And it's just stupid, simple, low-hanging fruit you can find as soon as you start seeing that data. And so why not, right? You know, it's, I got just as much effort to get your uh, manufacturing shop floor machines on as it is to get energy data collection going as well. I'm using the same tools. I might have a different sensor, but it's the same data collection path. Um, so why not? Right. And so we're combining that in to get even more data about our operations. And now and, and that starts the conversation of what next with us. Right. You know, we just now have kind of hit that hump of, you know, we've got energy data and operations data and we're starting to look at it and going, oh, wow. You know, here's all these insights we've never saw before. You know, why in the world is my number one reason for energy usage that my machine's waiting for somebody to load parts? You know, why do I not have an operator standing there loading parts? Right. You know, those are things that are just now starting to jump out at us from a data perspective. Um, those are things that are going to start generating other ideas as well. So it, within the next 18 to 24 months, I would expect that we probably have two or three more things that we're adding in to contextualize the data around things. I don't know what they are yet. Uh, you know, those, those are, but I know they're coming. We'll have something that comes up. Um, let me, let me, 
I wanted to say you you alluded to this earlier, which was high bite. You didn't say uh, high bite, I don't, but you you alluded, I know John you alluded and to high bite. and the team over there. Yeah, okay. so I know him well. Okay, so you you guys are you you are tailor made. Your architecture is tailor made to bolt onto your cap server infrastructure. I'm sure you're having those conversations. I don't know if you've looked at the REST data server. By the way, I don't get we don't get any. There's no. Yep. I mean, we're we're friends with them, and 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 I believe in the platform, but there's no affiliation. I make no financial benefit from our relationship with Highbyte whatsoever. But you guys are tailor made as an architecture. Sure, you are tailor made to bolt Highbyte on for that data ops component. Um, the, the industry itself. Where do you see the industry over the next eighteen to twenty four? I I I suspect it's. A similar path where you guys are, but yeah, there's no, got to be some other. Elements. Honestly, um, I, I'm not quite certain where some of it goes. To be honest, because when I see look at some of the other industry guys out there, it's either they're on the path already, or there's those that haven't started. And I think there's going to be some big shakeout with some of that. Yeah, yeah, M yeah, is going to explode. I mean, it's and and by the way, in in the companies that are most digital, digitally mature. They have a plan for incorporating yep. their acquisitions. You know, it's crazy to me the number of or you. One of the standards for how digitally mature you are is what is your strategy for incorporating acquisitions mm -hmm. into your digital infrastructure. And many of them say, "Well, we worry about that after the acquisition." That means you are digitally immature. A digitally mature organization is actually talking about that while they're evaluating the acquisition. Mm -hmm. It's one of the standards. Absolutely. But M&A is going to yeah. explode because those who are in digital maturity or under the mean, yes, yes. Could you, in theory, catch up? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of effort. It has to be your primary focus. But from my perspective as an investor, I'm not dumping. I'm not putting any money. In those companies that are under that are under the mean in terms of digital maturity, I think they've lost, and I think they're just they're going to go the way of acquisition or bankruptcy yep. for sure. Yep. Hundred percent. You know, I, I would agree with that. Hundred percent. I yep. mean, it's it's going to happen. Um, you know, there may be a few smaller businesses that could catch up quick, um, but I think that they would just then be an even mm -hmm. more attractive target for somebody else, right? You know, I mean, there, there are some challenges there. I want to touch on just one thing and then we'll, we'll, we'll call it a day, which is this. And you had alluded earlier. I get a lot of questions, you know, early on in industry four, there were a lot of organizations selling a bill of goods mm -hmm. that never came to fruition, right? They were saying we could solve your problem, you know, connected enterprise from Rockwell automation, mm -hmm. you, you name it. Everyone had one, right? And they wanted to own the stack. And I've gotten a lot of questions where people have said, what do you believe their intentions were? Do you believe that? The, the people who steered us wrong were doing it intentionally. They knew they were doing it intentionally or, and I, this is my general response and I wanted to answer it here. Okay. Are there players out there who were just trying to exploit ignorance? Absolutely. Okay. There were. Do I believe that that's the rule rather than the exception? No, I believe, I believe the exploitation mm -hmm. is, is generally the exception. I believe in general, the people in our industry want to do good. I, th I believe in general, they want to make a positive difference. But the truth is, is people don't know what they don't know, and including solutions providers, including solutions providers. And so I do believe that most people's hearts are in the right place while save, carving out a little corner over there for the yep. people whose hearts are not. I would right say place. going right. way back and putting on my, my economics minor hat, um, it also is very hard for them to understand what the financial incentive is to play in a common marketplace. They don't, 
there's no there's never been a good economic incentive laid out for them of why you want to combine forces with somebody else right you know it's always been me 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 i want the single stack you know and i'm thinking of the big providers they've never had any kind of incentive to have any kind of open stack for what they're doing they're trying to but is the incentive not obvious today like the incentive today they, to collaborate they keep is making not obvious that, or... that that's what they're doing. But then when you look under the hood of what they've done, it's no, they're not doing it. They're still not doing it. So, you know, it's, it's going to cause some shakeup. I mean, somebody's going to fail here. You know, I don't know who, I don't know where or when, but there will be some failures of some of the big stack companies over time because there's some disruption that's coming. It's Rockwell. I'm going to say it. It's Rockwell. Are the audience? No, I don't know. Too big I don't know. No, they're not. No. I mean, it's, but it's, I, I trying to stay out of the religious battle. I don't care. You know, honestly, you know, it's just as long as the PLC does what it's supposed to do. I don't care who you call it, Bob, for all I care. Um, yeah. But in the end, I think that they've, they've missed their market opportunity. I think that the, the opportunity was already there and Great. gone. And I think companies like Highbyte and PTC and others that are out there are going to eat their lunch, whether they know it or not. Yeah. Even Here's here's why I say it's Rockwell. Yep. Even Schneider has gotten it. Yep. Even Schneider has pivoted and understand. Even if you look at the way that they shook up the leadership at the very top of the organization on the board, Schneider understands that they missed the boat initially, and now they've 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 adjusted course. Right? Siemens did it a couple of years ago when they moved MindSphere, when they moved WinCCOA outside of the existing. Siemens infrastructure so that similar to what Toyota did with Toyota AI Ventures, they wanted to get it out of the existing culture of Siemens. They pivoted a couple of years ago. So now you've got Siemens, you've got Schneider. Rockwell has made no adjustments. Rockwell in 2023 is the same Rockwell in 2015. And by the way, I love Rockwell. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm hard on them because they have a responsibility, but I don't see how Rockwell is going to adjust. I It will be Rockwell. Rockwell is the one, and they're trying to hide they're losing market share through M&A. They're trying to hide it from their shareholders. But the reality is all these acquisitions are not acquisitions of a fruitful company. They, they are acquisitions. They are late partnerships to hide yeah. loss in market well, share. Just, That's what it is. And yeah, their shareholders have no Think about idea. where the technology is for PLC today. It is no longer necessary to have a physical yeah. PLC. You could have a computer. You could have whatever else Agreed. doing the same control functions. And that's the change. That is the big pivot that is kind of missed, right? Because it, I don't care anymore what my hardware is. It doesn't have to be Rockwell as long as it still runs the control systems the way it needs to, and I can get my data off of it. What do I care what flavor it is, right? It just needs to control. It, it's a commodity at that point. Exactly. And where and where is their control hardware? Show me the place. You know, Arduino or Arduino just came out with the C thirty three from the Portenta C33, right? I just ordered that, I, I got two of them for a hundred bucks. There's more horsepower on the Portenta C33 mm -hmm. than there is on a MicroLogix, and I paid yep. less than a hundred bucks for it, all right? I mean, it, right. like $60 for each of them. The reality is, the reality is, is that at the end, of, I people will ask me this question, you know, Walker, why do you, why do you take such hard positions? And I, and I, on open, uh, you know, companies that are moving towards it. And I say, are, okay, well, where's the future? Is the future more open or more closed, right? Where's the, because those are, they're two opposite directions on the same plane. Where is the future? The answer is more open. Okay, great. Show me how Rockwell is going more open. Show me how Schneider's going more open. Show me how Siemens is going more. I can see where Schneider's doing it. 
I can see where Siemens is doing it. I can't see where Rockwell's doing it. Show me where they're not. They're doubling down, doubling down, doubling down on connected enterprise. And when you go, even uh, here's another one I'll be hard on. Um, SAP. SAP is not going more open. Mm -hmm. They're going more closed. And this is the reason I was being more, it's like the future is more open, right? It's, you know, it's, and if you can't see that, I don't know, there's nothing I can do for you. I mean, I just, I can just insist, 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 but all right, Tom, dude, this was, I I definitely want to have you back. This was a excellent, excellent I, and, and, um, strongly, I know that you're already friends with John Harrington and those guys. So I look forward to in a couple of years, seeing you on a panel for high bite, talking about how high bite transform because you are, I mean, honestly, Trelleborg is probably the prototype for (laughs) is probably the prototype to show how using data ops right alongside legacy, you know, kept servers is legacy communication protocol, right? Is, is, is the, is the path to unlocking a legacy manufacturer's data infrastructure. Right. right. So thanks guys. Appreciate you. Thanks board, man. Thanks Tom. Talk to you next time.